Well, good evening, everybody, um, and welcome to this uh, evening session organized by the LSE's Center for Global Governance. My name's Jonathan Steele, and I'm a columnist for The Guardian and also a former chief foreign correspondent. We're very lucky we've got four speakers, all representing the UK government in its different guises. We have three civil servants and a major general serving officer. Um, so we should get a, a fantastic uh, glimpse into British government policy at this crucial stage during the transition now to local control and decision making in uh, the various provinces of Afghanistan. As you know, the global security program which this uh, meeting is conducted by is concerned with the human dimension of security and the role of civil society and bottom-up approaches to security. And it's been doing research in seven provinces of Afghanistan since 2009, conducting interviews with ordinary Afghans and representatives of civil society about their views, how they see the future and the role of uh, outside uh, governments. But what we're doing tonight is looking at the future of transitioning security, governance and justice responsibilities to the Afghan government. I'll introduce each speaker as we come to them to save time. They're going to speak for about 10 minutes each, perhaps 12 minutes maximum, which means we should have about 45 minutes for discussion and questions at the end. Uh, could everybody please switch off their mobile phones, by the way, if they've got them on at the moment? Um, this meeting is probably going to be podcast, uh, and so it'll be available online later on in a few days' time, probably. <clears throat> so let me begin, then, by introducing Nick Williams, um, who is Deputy Head of the Afghanistan Department of the Foreign and Commonwealth Office and has been there since February 2010. Nick. Um, thank you. Um, falls to me as um, the FCA representative to go first, which traditionally means I give a polished overview and everyone else will tell you what transition is really about. Um, but in fact, what I'll try and do is say something about the political context of transition in Afghanistan um, and then turn to other colleagues to talk a little bit about um, some of the specific military... Is, is it working? Maybe take this one. <coughs> Is that better? Yes. Okay. Or you could use the lectern if you wanted to. If, if the microphone's working, people can hear me. I'm happy here. Okay. Um, so I'm the SCA representative. I'm going first. Um, what I'll try and do is um, set out a bit of the political context of transition uh, in Afghanistan um, and then turn to other colleagues to talk a little bit about some of the specific military and development um, aspects, um, um, as well as the approach we've been taking in, in Helmand, where much of the UK effort has been focused. Um, before I get on to the specifics of transition and the issue of transition, it's worth recalling briefly why the UK has a military presence in Afghanistan, um, and it's an argument you've heard before, but it's worth repeating. Um, UK troops are there as part of a NATO-led um, coalition, currently 48 contributors with a UN mandate to ensure that Afghanistan uh, is never again used as a base for al-Qaeda, its affiliates, um, to plan and execute terrorist attacks um, on other countries. So in simple terms, it's about advancing uh, UK national security. Um, we, the UK, there have always also been clear that um, uh, delivering that overarching national security objective can't be delivered through uh, military means alone. 
as well as degrading the insurgency, uh, it requires a concerted effort to build Afghan security and governance capacity to the point at which um, the Afghans themselves can take responsibility for their own peace, security and, and stability. And I think that's what we've been seeing for most of the last 10 years, the 10 years um, during which there's been an international military presence in Afghanistan, um, a comprehensive effort involving development, military, diplomatic expertise and actors to try and create the conditions for sustainable peace and security in Afghanistan. I think most people would agree that um, we haven't always got it right. Um, there have been various rebalancings of the military and civilian efforts over the years, um, and the received wisdom is that um, during a particular period we took our eye off the ball in Afghanistan because of things that were going on elsewhere, and only in the past couple of years have we really devoted the necessary um, political military development resource um, to our efforts there. But I think it has always been clear that uh, this was all about creating the conditions that would eventually allow for a normalization of the international community's role in Afghanistan. Uh, and in particular, uh, for the end, the international military presence as currently configured. And that, in essence, is what transition, in broad terms, is all about, normalising the relationship between the international community and Afghanistan. I think what um, has also always been clear, and increasingly so in recent years, is that both the Afghans and the international community needed a sense of, of how long that process of transition would take and what the key stages would be, not in terms of a hard deadline, but a rough sense of how long it would take before Afghan capacity in the relevant areas was at the necessary level and how that would be done. So there was this, I think, um, common ISAF-Afghan interest in trying to sketch out the strategy for getting from where we are now to where we wanted to be. And I think President Karzai was the first person to articulate this publicly in clear terms, when following his election, uh, he set out the aspiration that Afghan security forces should take on full security responsibility across the country by 2014. Uh, and, and that publicly declared aspiration or objective by President Karzai was followed uh, in January 2010 by um, uh, the London Conference here in London, uh, a joint Afghan ISAF agreement that a framework, a joint framework should be developed to deliver this, this objective, to make this concept a reality. That concept then received an additional push at the Kabul conference the following summer. Um, and then in November last year, in Lisbon at the NATO summit, uh, NATO formally endorsed a conditions-based, step-by-step, phased approach to transition intended to culminate in transfer of security to the Afghan security forces um, by 2014. So that's some of the history of um, how the idea of transition came about, um, how it was um, turned into, um, if you like, a process that could be, could be delivered through multilateral and bilateral mechanisms. It's also the fact that that process of security transition is now a reality. President Karzai set out in his New Year speech this year the provinces and districts to be included in the first, what's been called a tranche of transition. Um, I mean, of course, we're only at the beginning of that process, and uh, there's a long way to go, and one only has to read the newspapers or watch the news to realise the very significant challenges that we and the, our Afghan partners face in Afghanistan. But nevertheless, it is a process which is, which is now concrete and, and underway. Although narrowly defined, um, this transition process, the process currently underway, is essentially about the transfer of security responsibility from ISAF to the Afghan security forces. 
making it a success will, I think there is a consensus around this, making it a success will continue to require a comprehensive approach. So that's to say uh, an effort to build capacity across the spectrum, not just security capacity. And so that effort to build security capacity, training the Afghan National Security Forces, um, about which John will speak in more detail later, um, that, that has to be accompanied by a broader effort to build governance and improve the Afghan government's ability to deliver basic services to its people. Uh, that process of civilian capacity building is happening. Uh, it's been happening for some time. Um, but it's probably still correct to describe it as a parallel process. And that's because the, the key criterion for security transition is, understandably, rightly, the ability of the NSF in a particular area to contain the local security threat. Other non-security criteria are taken into account, but they are second-tier criteria. The, the main criteria, rightly, is effectively um, uh, named criterion is a security criteria. Um, but the lead times for building uh, security capacity are significantly shorter than those for building governance capacity. You only have to compare the amount of time it takes to train an Afghan soldier with the amount of time it takes to train an Afghan prosecutor or judge. So there will never to be a difference in the timescales for delivering increased capacity in the respective areas. So I think um, it's important to understand that security transition will be in the vanguard of a broader process of Afghanization. Um, but that said, many aspects of non-security transition, or what people are increasingly calling transformation, um, will need to follow closely behind that security transition. So I think one of the challenges ahead is to try and make sure that improving the ability of the Afghan government to deliver basic services catches up with its ability to deliver security. That's, that's one of the basic challenges we face in the next um, three to four years. But that's also what the UK strategy in Afghanistan is intended to deliver. Um, and my colleagues will touch on some of the work that we're doing nationally and in Helmand to try and make that a, make that a reality. Um, I want it to be fairly brief because um, the chair is keen to allow plenty of time for Q&A. But before handing over to other colleagues, I probably should say a word about um, uh, the prospects for a political settlement in Afghanistan and what potentially the uh, impact of that uh, will be for transition, as I'm sure it's, it's an issue that people will, will want to raise um, during the Q&A session. In short, I think delivering security transition is not dependent on delivering a political settlement. It doesn't require it in order for us to make transition a success. But it is clear that the prospects for sustainable peace and stability in Afghanistan, and by extension for sustainable transition, will be improved, significantly improved, if Afghanistan were able to deliver an inclusive settlement that respects the interests and rights of all Afghans. Now, this is an, and needs to remain an Afghan-led process, but we in our international partners have made clear our willingness to support the Afghans in seeking to deliver that political settlement. I think um, one of the questions that now faces us is whether we can take advantage of the military and civilian gains of 2011, and including the death of Osama bin Laden, um, to uh, create an opportunity to persuade the Taliban that their interests lie not in fighting but in talking. But the big question is whether uh, they will see it that way. Um, I think I'll leave it there. Um, there's four of us, um, three other perspectives to bring, and I'm sure you'll have lots of questions in the Q&A session, so uh, I'll now turn across to uh, my other colleagues. Thank you very much. <coughs> Thank you very much indeed, uh, Nick Williams, and particularly for bringing in the political aspect, because obviously the death of Osama bin Laden has <coughs> raised new questions about 
whether the mission has been half accomplished already now that the leader of Al-Qaeda is dead. And I think it was President Karzai who responded or reacted to the uh, death of Osama by saying, well, we always said that the battle should be fought not in the villages of Afghanistan, but in uh, the terror camps or the terror havens of uh, Pakistan. So that is very important, and thanks for bringing that up. Our next speaker is Muazzam Malik, who is with the Department for International Development, DFID, used to be working very much on issues of UN development and humanitarian affairs and security, but since May last year, exactly a year ago, he's been um, director of the Western Asia and Stabilization Division of DFID. Please. <coughs> Can you hear me okay? Um, I have to say, just to start, that it's kind of slightly scary to be standing down here having spent uh, several years trying to hide at the back as a student. I never imagined that I might find myself uh, in front of an audience at the LSE. Um, Afghanistan. Um, important to remember the context. A country that's uh, emerging from 30 years of conflict, one of the poorest countries in the world, a third of the population live on less than 60 pence a day. Three quarters of Afghanistan's people are illiterate. One in six children die before their sixth birthday. And life expectancy is only 44 years. Afghanistan is, of course, off track on all the MDGs. Women and girls are hugely disadvantaged. Poor governance and corruption undermine people's trust in government. And weak public sector capacity hinders state ability to deliver basic services. It's essential to remember the human cost that lies behind these facts. Conflict has bred poverty, and underdevelopment in turn has fed conflict. And that's the cycle that we face, and that's the cycle that we need to try and break. Um, Nick talked a bit about transition. I think. The, one of the most significant things that has happened uh, on the Afghanistan agenda, if you like, for the la over the last six months has been the emergence um, of a timetable. Because it's clear now that, our, and our Prime Minister has made clear, that UK troops will cease to have a combat role in Afghanistan by 2015. And from that date, President Karzai and the international community have agreed that Afghanistan will be in charge of its own security. Now, if that security transition is to work and to be sustainable, we must help Afghanistan come to a domestic political settlement, and Nick talked a bit about that. But we must also put in place the governance reforms that are necessary so that Afghanistan can manage its own future affairs. And in thinking about that, it's absolutely critical to remember that 2015 is not the end of the road. Yeah, we have a timetable, it's a, it's a realistic timetable, it's a timetable that's more luxurious in some ways than you, you usually get in conflict settings. Usually you're working in conflict situations to much shorter timetables. Here we have a reasonably sensible timetable with which one can work. But it can't be the end of the road because it would be unrealistic to expect the Afghan state to be perfect by 2015. But what is essential is that Afghanistan makes sufficient progress by 2015 to be stable at that date and for there to be sufficient momentum in order to maintain that trend of stability beyond 2015. 
because the worst case scenario would see the country returning to civil war after 2015. And that would be a disaster for the international community, it would be a disaster for the region, and it would be a disaster, most importantly, for millions of Afghans. So let me turn a little to, to, to say a bit about what DFID is doing uh, in Afghanistan. We're working very closely with the rest of the UK government and the international community to lie, and of course the Afghan government uh, and many civil society organizations to try and lay the essential and the minimal groundwork for stability by 2015. And in so doing, we're trying to set the groundwork in place for the maintenance of that trajectory beyond 2015. That's a long-term endeavor, and DFID, on our part, is committed to being in Afghanistan um, for the next 10 years, 20 years, 30 years, whatever is required given to deal with the many deep-seated challenges that Afghanistan faces. But as we look to the next four years, there are three critical areas that we're going to be working on. First, trying to promote peace, security, and political stability. So we're looking to support inclusive politics, helping communities resolve their disputes peacefully, trying to increase political participation, and building people's trust in the state, particularly in insecure areas. Second, we're trying to create the prospect for both economic stability and growth and more jobs. Because without an economic horizon, securing a sustainable peace is gonna be extremely, extremely difficult. So we're looking to work with the Afghan government to help them raise taxes, to manage those resources well, to manage a stable macroeconomic climate. And we're looking to create jobs by working on priority areas such as large-scale infrastructure, which Afghanistan desperately needs, agriculture, looking to support the emergence of private business, working with communities on infrastructure, and trying to get the climate right for, for international investment. And third, we're looking to help the state build the capacity that it needs to deliver services, basic services such as education, health, vocational <coughs> training, for men, women, and girls. And doing that requires us to help the, the Afghan government build its own capacity, both to manage resources, to define priorities, but also then to get out there and to deliver. And that's not just about what happens in Kabul, it's actually about what happens at every tier of government across the country. Is it working? Yes, it is working. Sheila will talk a bit more about Helmand in a minute, um, but and it's important to remember, actually, that, that in terms of the DFID program, 80% of our program is national, and 20% of our program is focused on Helmand. So Sheila will talk more about Helmand, but just to start with a Helmand example, we're working in Helmand uh, on something called the District Delivery Program, which is looking to build links between the government of Afghanistan and its people. It's essential because local government is where most people, most Afghans, come into contact with the government. So if you look at Nad Ali, a district uh, in, in, in Helmand, and I think uh, Jonathan wrote about this in his piece in The Guardian some months ago. A year ago, there were no district officials in Nad Ali. Today, as a result of the work that we've been doing through the PRT, there are now 40 local government officials in Nad Ali. And they're working on cleaning canals, they're refurbishing schools, they're providing drinking water, and they're trying to respond to the needs of the community at that level. The, gov the Afghan government has a flagship national solidarity program. The national solidarity program, working with the World Bank, US government, DFID, and many others, has helped elect 26,000 community development councils across the country. That's 26,000 communities that have debated priorities 
and who in turn have organized almost 55,000 projects to improve the lives of those communities. They're building roads, they're starting up small-scale electricity generation, they're repairing irrigation channels. And over the next year or two, we're looking to expand the reach of NSP to another 10,300 communities in, in the most hard to reach, in the most insecure areas. And behind each of those projects are lives transformed. At a broader level, looking at the economy, with UK support, the Afghan exchequer has raised 20% more revenue each year since 2002. Economic growth since 2003 has averaged some 9%. We've already provided as DFID alone training to 4,500 farmers so that they can increase their incomes. We're developing plans to provide vocational training for another 45,000 people. We're looking to create another 200,000 jobs for Afghan men and women over the next four years. And on the mining sector, which is absolutely key to the future of the economy in Afghanistan, we've been working very, very closely with the Ministry of Mines to try and ensure that there is good governance as they exploit the potential that is there. So the government of Afghanistan has signed up to the Extractive Industries Transparency Initiative, EITI, which will allow Afghans to hold their own government to better account by putting, public, by putting information in the public domain. And already the Minister of Mines has put the first 108 contracts that Afghanistan has signed onto their website. On education and health, today more than 5.3 children are going to 5.3 million children are going to school in Afghanistan. That compares to around 1 million in 2001. And more than a third of those are girls. And there were almost no girls in school at the time when the Taliban fell. Today, 85% of Afghans can access health facilities within an hour, compared to only 9% in 2002. And in 2008, Almost 70% of health facilities were able to provide maternal care compared to just 23% in 2004. The UK is helping achieve these outcomes by putting our money into the Afghan government to finance salaries as well as some of the commodities that are needed. So UK resources are helping finance salaries, for example, of 320,000 public servants, teachers, health workers. And if one looks at literacy, something remarkable is happening in this country. The literacy rate amongst teenage girls compared to those, girl, those women in their 20s has doubled over the last decade. And the literacy rate for boys in their teens compared to those in their 20s has doubled in the last decade. That's a generation of children growing up who are going to change their country. So progress is being made in Afghanistan, but there is clearly still a lot to do. And in the few minutes that I have, I want to turn to four challenges that, that we face as we think about the next four years. Two on the Afghan side and two challenges for the international community. The first on the Afghan side is weak capacity, because the ability to do anything and to deliver anything to Afghan people rests on the capacity at the disposal of the Afghan government. And anyone who's been to Afghanistan, and I, I'm a frequent visitor, will know just how thin 
Afghan capacity is, not just in Kabul, but at the provincial level and at the district level. And as a result, progress is slower than it should be. So for example, last June, last July, the Afghan government had a very major event, a Kabul conference, where they set out their plans for the next few years. <clears throat> their plan had been to present 22 programs to the international community for funding. Unfortunately, so far, only nine of those programs, of those 22 programs, have been costed, and only three have been approved. That's capacity holding back progress. I talked about Nad Ali in Helmand earlier. Well, we need to see the Nad Ali example replicated not just across Helmand, but actually across large parts of the country. So getting subnational governance right is absolutely critical. So the first challenge for us is how do we build capacity, not supplant capacity, but build capacity that can see Afghanistan through to 2015, but also see it through for the decade that follows. The second challenge is corruption. We're not going to eliminate corruption in the next four years, but we must see some improvement. A current problem that we have to just illustrate the issue is with the Kabul Bank. I don't know how many of you followed that in, 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 in the news media, but this is a, a, a very, very important bank uh, in Afghanistan which runs the payments network across the country uh, and through shareholder mismanagement and corruption has found itself with a hole of the region, in the region of 800 million US dollars. We've taken a very, very strong stance on this. We've insisted that unless the Kabul Bank is cleaned up, that Afghanistan can't proceed with an IMF program. And in the absence of an IMF program, we've withheld UK taxpayers' money from the Afghan Reconstruction Fund, which, is a, which, which is in turn is paying the salaries that I talked about earlier. That's a tough choice to make. But we're clear that when you have an example of grand larceny on the scale of something like the Kabul Bank, which reaches into the political class, that it needs to be cleaned up. And we're working very hard with the fund and the Afghan authorities to get that bank <coughs> cleaned up and to make sure that banking supervision is tightened up so that this sort of example doesn't recur in the, in the coming years. But that kind of grand corruption has to be stemmed, if only to build confidence between the Afghan authorities and its own people, never mind what the international community may or may not make of it. A third challenge, turning to the international community, we must resist the temptation to gold plate. It's a tough environment. It's an insecure environment. There's a lot that needs to be done. It's very tempting for us as Westerners to appear in Kabul and Lashkagar and Herat and say, these 20 things need to be accomplished in the next four years. Actually, these 20 things need to be accomplished in the next decade, the next two decades. There are perhaps four or five things that really must be done in the next four years in order for Afghanistan to be stable. So we must focus, and we must be disciplined, and we must focus on building those things that can stick. And fourth, a fourth challenge, again on the international side, is international financing. The track record of the international community is very poor. We go in, we throw lots of money at a problem. The minute the problem looks remotely resolved, we run. So we have a timetable, but Afghanistan's success doesn't rest on simply ticking boxes on transition in 2015. They rest on staying stable beyond 2015. And we know that Afghanistan 
despite that impressive tax performance that I talked about earlier, is not going to be able to meet its own security costs for at least another decade. If the international community can't come through and find a mechanism to cover those costs, Afghanistan will fall apart. Militias will take hold. And the problem here is not a development problem, because there's a limit to what proportion of security costs can be covered by development assistance, by DFID and other sorts of counterparts. This is a problem where we, in fact, need non-ODA to come into play. And that's going to pose some great challenges for us. So in, in closing, progress is being made in Afghanistan to help it become a viable state. It's going to be a challenging four years. We're going to need to be very disciplined in thinking about what we're trying to do. And we're going to need to align behind the Afghan government's own priorities. And I speak as a development ministry official, but you know, we're going to need to remember that development alone is not going to deliver peace. But development can help the, set the context in which peace can take hold. So as we look ahead, two mantras, I think, for, for, for us. One, capacity, capacity, capacity. And second, be realistic. Focus on what really, really matters. Thank you. Okay, thank you very much, Wasm. <clears throat> We're now going to have a, a PowerPoint from Sheila Stewart, who used to be Deputy Director of the South Asia Division of DFID and is now head of the Stabilization Unit. And I think she'll explain exactly what the Stabilization Unit does. Should we perhaps go to the front row? We can actually see the slides. everybody um, it's a oh you've moved it's a great privilege to be here um, thank you very much for having me um, what you've had so far are, are two presentations which are the sort of the big picture what I'm going to focus on very much is how this gets delivered in on the ground and I'm going to focus very much on Helmand so just to kick off and say a little bit about the stabilization unit the stabilization unit was created as the post-conflict resolution unit in, 19, in 2006, as a res 2004, as a response to our understanding in Iraq that you need defense development and diplomacy working together if you're going to have any chance of delivering stability and, and a, a, a sustainable peace. So the stabilization unit is a tri-departmental unit, and I report to a board which consists of the Foreign and Commonwealth Office, the Department for International Development, and the Ministry of Defense. And what we do, therefore, is draw together the whole-of-government approach and deliver it on the ground. Um, so with that, I'm going to turn to a little bit to what we do in Helmand. What I'm going to do in the presentation, I'm going to answer the question, what is stabilization? I'm going to say a bit about what it looks like on the ground, and I'm going to say what this means for transition in Afghanistan. So what is stabilization? Very simply, preventing, reducing, stopping conflict protecting people and their livelihoods, and preparing for peace, which is about promoting the political process at both local and national levels, and protecting key institutions, or helping to set them up if they're not there. And by key institutions, we basically mean the 
place where government meets people. So key institutions, the institutions that deliver things like health, that deliver things like water, and deliver things like security for people. So deliver human security and a sense of safety on the ground. So to define it very quickly, stabilization is the process by which underlying tensions that might lead to a resurgence in violence and a breakdown in law and order are managed and reduced whilst efforts are made to support preconditions for successful longer-term development. And just to articulate that slightly, there's absolutely no point in doing quick and dirty stabilization activities that, that do not support the longer term. So, if you draw a distinction between law and order and rule of law, you can very easily impose law and order by chasing people off the streets, by dealing with them when they, whenever they stick their heads above the parapet and dealing with them very harshly when they protest. That will not lead to longer term rule of law. So your initial law and order activities have to reflect the understanding that we are moving towards longer term rule of law and they have to take on board the need that people feel to be safe, not just from external threats, but from the police and from the people in their immediate environment. So you have a different model. So that's what stabilization is about doing. It's about doing short-term activities that ease the longer-term position, but doing them in such a way that you can connect them into the longer-term development piece. So stabilization take, forms the bridge between a conflict and between longer-term development very complex. So it needs us to work together in government. It needs an integrated and inter-agency approach. And that's everybody working together. And the way we describe this as, in, in Helmand in particular, one stabilization space, one plan, and that plan integrates defense, development, and diplomacy. And it's supported by one Whitehall structure, which includes civilians and military, and delivers defense, diplomatic, and development responses. So if you go to the PRT in Helmand, you will see sitting there DFID, Ministry of Defence, Foreign and Commonwealth Office, Estonians, Danes and military, all working together to deliver this one plan, which is the government of Afghanistan's plan. So what we learned very early on is that if it's not the government of Afghanistan's plan, it's not going to work. It's going to be aiming for the wrong things and it's going to be probably too ambitious. So on the ground, what this looks like on the ground, you're going to find principally four key lines of activity. Security, political settlement at local and national levels, and that's in the first instance about getting governments to talk to their people, and in the case of Helmand, getting local government to talk to people and start negotiating with them. Livelihoods, that's very simply, can people make a living? So if you can't make a living, you might go off and do other things. You might join an insurgency. It's a very critical question, that. And then welfare, water, health, education. Can you get your kids to school? Are you reasonably healthy? Is there someone you, somewhere where you can go if you're not? And these, are, you know, we can all relate to this. We wouldn't be very happy if we couldn't get our kids to school. And, and this is just about basic comfort of people on the ground. So here we are. Secure, this is just a picture. Security, cessation of hostilities, establishment of day-to-day personal and then economic security. So people need to feel safe, but they also need to be able to take their tomatoes to market without getting them nicked, or their chickens to market without getting them nicked. And this is a picture of an Afghan policeman searching people on their way into Ashura. Now this is important for two reasons. The first is it's an Afghan policeman. So this is security delivered by Afghans for Afghans. 
And the second reason why it's important is that people are going to Ashura, they're going to a space within which they negotiate with their government and they change things. And I'll come back to that in a second. Political settlement, this is basically, you know, I always say war, war, not jaw, jaw, but what I mean is jaw, jaw, not war, not war, war. So this is the Churchillian thing, get people talking to each other, get the government talking to people and move the political settlement forward at very local levels. And this is a picture of the Shura that's connected to the, the, the previous picture I showed you of the policeman. And here, this is just a slice down the middle of the Shura tent. And the tent was absolutely packed. And this was a food zone Shura. And, and we picked up a very interesting piece of information, and this is about three or four years ago, that when you're delivering wheat seeds, which are supposed to be, or which are, a replacement for planting poppy, um, the wheat seed planting time is in January, so we always thought it was okay to deliver the seeds in January. And what we gathered from the Shura is that you plant the poppy in December, and if you don't know at the beginning of December that the seed is coming, you may go ahead and plant poppy anyway as a risk insurance. So it's important if you're trying to deliver wheat seed to get them in that much earlier so that people have the assurance that they have an alternative before they've lost the kind of poppy growing season. And that's the kind of information that you can get out of Ashura. But this is also a space, and you can see at the front there's all the Afghan government officials and on, on the side there's stabilization advisors. But this is also the place where people get comfort because they're talking to their government and they see the government starting to respond to the kind of concerns that they've raised. And although this is very local, and this is down at the Helmand level, this does connect to what you were talking about in the Foreign Office, about the sort of wider national political settlement. Well-being, ensuring that government can deliver basic services, usually initially water, followed up by health and education. And this is a picture of one of the wells that's been built. Livelihoods, and I said this before, this is about can people earn a living? And that usually has two things. Can, can they, are they safe enough to plant things and are they sure that it won't get nicked on the way to market? So, and are there markets? Is there a place where they can tell, say, take their products and sell them? Now, the provincial reconstruction team in Holland works towards delivering transition, and it works along those four pillars of activity. But as Mozam said, what's absolutely critical about this is deciding what's crucial and doing that first, not being overambitious. Um, we deliver through an integrated interagency approach. The various actors are the government, um, including local government, international partners, including the US, Denmark, and Estonia. There is a planning process, which all of these partners are involved in, and that's refreshed every year, and it's delivered coherently. So everybody works together behind this one plan. And the idea is, these are the sort of big picture ideas, supporting transition in Helmand. The strategic goal is the successful transition of Helmand in accordance with the framework for Intercal, endorsed by Afghanistan and the international community at the Kabul conference in July 2010, thereby enabling the drawdown of international security and stabilization elements. But as Mazam said, without leaving a gap, without leaving a vacuum. And the strategic purpose is that by the end of 2014, the government has got enough capacity by itself to control, employ, and maintain state institutions and to ensure that the insurgency, narco networks, and criminality effects are reduced to a point where they do not pose a threat to the sustainability. Now, that's ambitious, but as Mazam said, there needs to be international financing to help them take this beyond the end of the transition process.
So just a few examples. Um, an agricultural demonstration farm developed by our stabilization farmer. It's about teaching local farmers to grow things which are an alternative for poppy. And one of the things that we found out is that the basic farming knowledge has been very degraded by 25 years of conflict. And so people haven't known how to get the best out of what is quite unforgiving land without water. So basic farming knowledge has made quite a big difference to people's ability to earn a living. Um, one of the other things that we've been very involved in is setting up prisons. Because when criminals are removed from the streets, it dramatically enhances people's own sense of safety. And there was a high degree of criminality as well as general insecurity. And so one of the things we're, we're working on is improving the prison so that um, you, you can detain people, but they come out afterwards with some way of making a living so that they don't come out afterwards as criminals who are going to go back to causing trouble. And then finally, in education, 40 schools have been opened across Helmand since December 2008, and Mozam gave us some idea about how literacy has improved and what a, what a dramatic difference that makes to the future. Challenges face going forward, um, and General Lorimer will talk more about this, but ANSF, ANA, Responsibility for Security, Police Training and professionalism. It's very, very important that the police aren't just another level of thugs. And there's been a very big difference in the policing. And what we're seeing now at the local level is people are encouraging their own grown-up children to join the police because they have more confidence that that's a good place to go. So you're getting more local policing and it's, it's functioning much more effectively and people feel more safe, particularly in places like Nadali. Mozam said this, the depth of capability in the Afghan government, it's very thin. It's particularly thin at district level, and that really matters in terms of you know, changing the security and changing the situation at, at district level. <coughs> Community expectations is a big one. People expect to see a peace dividend, and they expect to see it very quickly. And it's important that the government both delivers for them, but also has good communication so it can manage those expectations. So it, it says to them, look, we're not going to be able to change everything. We will be able to change some things over the next two years. Over the next five years, we'll be able to change some other things, but we're not going to change your entire life by tomorrow. And then finally, impacts of the national political settlement or not. The national political settlement matters to whether um, these gains that have been made in Helmand will be sustained. That's it. Thank you very much for listening to me. Let me just introduce Major General John Lorimer before he kicks off, because I think you would be interested to know his very wide and deep career he's had. He's been a commander at platoon company and battalion levels, including in Belize, Central America, Norway, Northern Ireland, and Iraq. He commanded 12 mechanized brigade from June 2005 to November 2007, completing operational tours in both Iraq and Afghanistan. And he was promoted to Major General in November 2010. And he is now, as a terrible long title, Chief of Defense Staff Strate Strategic Communications Officer it basically means he's the person who, when my colleagues and I ring up an MOD, he's the person who we want to speak to. Please. Now, other people call me the uh, Spinmeister General. 
Um, being the fourth of four, one sits listening to everyone else speaking brilliantly, and then you go, and there's another sandwich. I've just lost another sandwich, and I could probably reduce myself down to uh, a couple of sand bites. But it's appropriate that um, the man from the mod is, is the last man to speak because the Ministry of Defence is very much in support of the other government departments, uh, both in UK, but particularly in Afghanistan. Uh, the soldiers are in support of the government of Afghanistan and in coordination and cooperation with the other government departments. We're there enabling governance and uh, economic development and welfare, but supporting the other government departments to make people's lives better. I thought I'd just to focus on a, a couple of areas. Now, NATO announced uh, the, 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 the concept of transmission in November last year, and we've already come quite a long way since then. And on the 22nd of March this year, President Karzai, it was on the beginning of the Islamic New Year, President Karzai announced the first seven locations, uh, which included uh, Lashkagar. And these are the seven locations that are ready for the first phase of security transition in Afghanistan. And incidentally, they cover about a fifth of the Afghan population, these seven locations. And thus, this begins the process of a gradual transition, which will be completed across the country, as you've heard, by the end of 2014. Now, in theatre, ISAF and the wider international community, alongside and very much in support of the government of Afghanistan, are working hard towards implementing the start of the transition process, which, which will begin in July. First, a, a, a word about security and the sort of current update. Now, insurgent activity during uh, April didn't increase significantly uh, compared, to the, compared to that uh, seen in, in March. And within Helmand province, levels of, the, of uh, insurgent activity uh, were particularly low compared to previous periods. However, seasonal trends associated with the completion of the poppy harvest, and the large number of weapon caches still being found, and the Taliban's declared intention on the 1st of May to begin their spring offensive, all suggest that activity will increase over the coming months. There's no doubt that 2011 is likely to be tough. But the insurgency has been disrupted, and more importantly, Afghan forces have been built up to meet the threat. Even though the Taliban uh, announced the start of the fighting season, in uh, the southwest of the country, at the moment it appears that the insurgents are still focused on the harvest of the poppy. Now, recent high-profile incidents, uh, and it give you an example, the prison escape from Sarposa prison in, in Kandahar, or various assassinate, assassination attempts against high uh, or prominent Afghans. They're significant, but they're, they're one-off actions. They're not part of a coordinated plan, and they're more, more one-off actions from an insurgency that's under pressure. The capability of the Afghan National Security Forces continues to grow, but there's no doubt about it, there are challenges in further reducing attrition rates and improving the leadership. Um, last year, there was a major focus on literacy training, uh, signals, medical and logistics, command and control. There's some more sophisticated aspects of, of some military activity. 
But the ANA, uh, the Afghan National Army, increasingly able to move out and take the fight to the insurgency, allowing the Afghan National Police to consolidate the gains, demonstrate to the communities how they can look after them. And perhaps this is the key security aspect to lasting and successful transition. So after a tough 2010 and winter, the insurgency remains under extreme pressure from both ISAF and the ANSF. And it will be continued to be so throughout 2011. Um, I think we anticipate that the insurgency will attempt to regain lost ground, both physical ground and also in terms of influence, perceptions of the, of the people. But they will find it increasingly difficult to dominate the population physically and it is, I think, more than possible, I think it's very likely that they will result to the spectacular, some of which I've just mentioned, as a means of attempting to re-establish their presence and influence across Afghanistan. Now, a word now about Afghan national security force development, which is so key. Now, developing the uh, NSF is uh, a key part of the counterinsurgency approach. They have an essential role in providing both security and governance in Afghanistan. And over the last couple of years, particularly, the Afghan National Security Forces have made significant progress. The efforts by the international community and also NATO, NATO training mission uh, Afghanistan have been considerable. And for example, um, nowadays 95% of patrols conducted and operations conducted by ISAF, international troops, are partnered with the Afghan National Security Forces. And to give you an example, last year on Hamkari, which is around uh, Kandahar, the, the force, the overall force, 60% of it was Afghan. And in central Helmand, uh, the Afghan National Army have planned and led a series of operations called Op Omid, uh, which is uh, Op Hope, um, with the British mentors taking a step back, moving more to an advisory role. Um, and this is becoming more and more evident as the Afghan National Army capability increases. And um, whilst the recent complex attack took place in Kandahar, which you may have heard about uh, last week, it demonstrated an insurgent uh, ability to launch such a, a major attack. It also demonstrated that the NSF, because it was they alone, who were able to deal, that they have the ability to, to counter such major incidents. The insurgents failed to achieve any of their targets, and, and many of them were killed in the process, and the response was almost entirely Afghan. So building the capacity and capability of the Afghan National Security Forces will allow the Afghans to take increasing responsibility for their own security and carry out operations without uh, the support or need of the, uh, without the, the, the ISAF support. And obviously this will ensure the longer term security and stability of the country and allow the international troops, and, uh, and I'm talking about all of them, all 48 nations in, in ISAF, to gradually draw down over time and return home. So in short, we're making um, excellent progress in terms of uh, growing the Afghan National Security Forces and currently ahead of the schedule, uh, the program to meet the target of 171,600 Afghan National Army 
warriors, as they're called, and 134,000 Afghan national policemen by the end of by the end of the year. And just to give you an example, the Helmand Police Training Centre in Helmand, near Lashkagar, has just graduated its 3,000th patrolman. These are local lads, majority of them Helmand, taken in, professionalised as policemen, and then sent back out to their own communities in many cases. And they represent uh, the, uh, the, the government of Afghanistan and provide that element of policing and a wider security. A word now about the uh, Afghan local police, which you may have heard, which is an initiative, and, um, and particularly in respect to Helmand. The Afghan local police, um, at the, uh, sorry, the UK, at the request of Governor Mangle, who's the governor of Helmand, um, and his district governors, um, has begun to establish uh, an Afghan local police presence in central Helmand. And working with the Afghan authorities, uh, we've identified and established six ALP initiatives within the, uh, the UK area of operations. Now, UK support includes uh, assistance with mentoring or recruiting training and mentoring. And the whole point of the Afghan, point, the whole point about the Afghan local police is that they provide interim community-based defence against the insurgent in contested areas, which are important to the campaign, but where there are currently no or, or, or insufficient NSF. And this is an Afghan solution to a problem, very much driven by the government of Afghanistan and supported by uh, the international community. The Afghan local police uh, recruits are vetted uh, and approved by the local shurers, by the local tribal elders, and by the district police chiefs. Uh, they're mentored, they're monitored by the local shura, by the chief of police, and also the provincial and district governors. Now, it's an interim measure, as I've already mentioned, uh, and the aim is that over time either they'll be wound up or they'll be incorporated into the Afghan National Security Forces. And this will give, in total, another, something like another 30,000 uh, counter-insurgents uh, and uh, individuals providing wider security. Finally, just a word on Lashkagar. And I told you that the inclusion, that, that Lashkagar was included in the first tranche um, of those areas that are going to start the, uh, the transition process. And this perhaps is a um, demonstrates that the UK and international efforts to support the ANSF development through training, partnering, mentoring, and also uh, supporting uh, the, the local governance is, is working. A sign of progress and is perhaps proof that our civilian and military effort in Lashkagar and also more widely in Helmand. Uh, and incidentally, our headquarters and the headquarters of the PRT is in Lashkagar. It kind of is proof, I think, that the, they're successfully working on behalf of and in support of the governor of Helmand and also all the bits and pieces that make Helmand tick, all the bits that represent governance um, and economic development. And it's, they're truly having an effect. But this, uh, this announcement of Lashkagar being amongst the first tranche is only the beginning of the process. Uh, Lashkagar will take some time to complete the transition process. 
I indeed had expected that districts and provinces will take between 18 and 24 months uh, to complete the whole process. But in Lashkar, already, um, the Afghan National Security Forces provide security to a satisfactory level. And life you know, has returned to normal in large areas, in large parts of the town. We're therefore building on a solid, a solid base. And as an example, in Lashkar, there were very, very few international uh, troops operating uh, within the city. It's all done by the Afghan National Security Forces. But um, just in a little bit of a down note as I finish, we need to just put the announcement that Lashkar is in the first tranche um, in context. It's a small but important step, I accept. But the security in the rest of Helmand province uh, still re represents a serious challenge. Uh, a challenge to us, a challenge to the other international forces that exist, uh, that work in, in, in Helmand, particularly the US Marine Corps, but particularly to the Afghans. And as I said at the beginning, the insurgency has been under pressure through 2010 and into 2011, but we still expect a tough year of fighting ahead. But we're definitely heading in the right direction. Thank you. Thank you very much. <coughs> well, we now have about 35, 40 minutes for questions. Um, if anybody wants to raise a question, can you wait for one of these people in the red T-shirts to bring the microphone to you? And perhaps you could give your name, please, and if it's relevant where you are from or who you work for. And perhaps also specify to whom, which of the four panelists, you address the question or to all of them. Khalid and Deem, South Asia Middle East Forum. Thank you for all your presentations, which gave us, a, I think, an excellent overview of uh, UK government, what the UK government is doing in Afghanistan. Uh, I'm concerned, firstly, about the Afghan army and Afghan police. Um, the retention, I heard that the desertion rates are very high, um, maybe 15, 20%, may even be more. And also another problem they have is that they have a very high level of drug addiction, which of course doesn't help them in facilitating their jobs. Again, uh, I've been told 25-30% Afghan police, Afghan army. Also I'm concerned about the will to deal with corruption. Um, corruption I think is very prevalent at the, at the top at most levels, and at those levels there doesn't seem the, the will of the government in my view, to actually target people who've been involved. And the, and, the, and the problem is, it's reached the level that it's close to the presidency itself. I'm not going to name names or people. And uh, there was an instance recently of a, of a person coming from Afghanistan to Dubai with, with a lot of money, millions of dollars, and the, he was stopped at the airport. But then he, he made a call to Afghanistan, and he was released and went into Dubai and presumably deposited that money. We heard nothing, nothing else about it. No one took any action. And I think it's sad. It sets a very sad example. And I meet Afghans, and they say, basically, well, no one is dealing with this issue. And 
and it doesn't set a good example for the rest of the country. So who is the question addressed to? Um, well, sort ourselves out, if you like. Shall I do the, the attrition okay. one, which you mentioned? You mentioned uh, desertion, but it's, uh, it's called attrition. Can you hear me? Yeah. Attrition, sorry. Attrition. Um, and that includes desertion. That includes, i.e., people, members of the security forces disappearing and never ten, uh, intending to come back. That includes absence without leave, so sort of kind of going, but kind of thinking at some stage I'll come back. Uh, often, actually, people go absent, with delay on li absent without leave because they haven't had a leave for so long and you know, they just want to take slightly longer than they think they've been given. And it, it also includes casualties. Well, the, the target percentage is 1.4%. That's the target for the two organisations. For the Afghan National Army, the, the, uh, the rate is 1.85. And for the Afghan National Police, it's 1.4. So it's on the target. So it's not as high as you... But it is something they're working hard at doing. And, and one of the key uh, ways of uh, bringing down the attrition rate, particularly desertion in AWOL, is ensuring that you have a sustainable personnel system. So you're not only creating an army that can fight, but you also have a system that can look after the welfare of the, the soldiers and the, the policemen, looking after their leave, they get paid properly, and all the other bits and pieces that um, makes up a, um, a modern 21st century army that will endure over time. And that is very much what uh, uh, the Ministry of Defence, the Ministry of Interior, is supported by uh, uh, the international community are attempting to do. And I think the corruption of drugs are probably that way. Okay. I agree with you. Afghanistan has a problem with corruption. Um, it's not unique. Uh, it's a problem that affects many countries in that region, affects many countries around the world. Um, as I said in, in the comments that I made, it's not a problem that's going to go away in the next four years. The question is, how can sufficient progress be made so that it doesn't threaten the stability of the country? Um, it occurs at all levels. So there's, you know, there's kind of grand political corruption, uh, but it also occurs at the level of the day-to-day. -day. So you know, policemen holding up uh, people, district officials or local officials and ministries wanting to backsheesh around the side. Um, I think we've, again, uh, you know, we, the Kabul Bank is an example where we believe that the, the, that specific case was so prominent and so connected that actually it, it threatened the, 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 the future stability of the country. And therefore, we've taken a very, very strong position. Um, there'll be other cases like that, and we'll need to take a reasonably, a pretty strong position on those. Um, at the same time, we're looking to build up the institutions in Afghanistan. So there's a high, a, a high office uh, been set up by Karzai. There's an international monitoring committee that's got some members on it. Progress is slower than we would like, but there is progress. Um, and there are, have been examples where, you know, the, the, on this Kabul bank, there, the, some of the people who've been fingered are very, very connected to the people at the top of the Karzai government. But there is every prospect that we will see uh, money recovered and that we will see uh, files move to court on this. And I think uh, you know, if, if that comes good, that will set up some good uh, precedent for the future. But I, you, know, you can't pretend that this problem is going to go away. There's, there's tough work to be done on this over the next few years. 
which I said a brief word on, on sort of um, the issue of drug use in the, in the security forces. And I think historically it's been more of a problem uh, in the police force than it has in the army, rather like corruption, and it, it, still, is a, it still is an issue. Um, I think there has been um, there's a greater acknowledgement of the problem now. And I think as you see levels of professionalism in the police force increase, I think you, you, you're seeing the problem start to come under control. I think um, police recruits who've been through a proper process of training or have been taken back into a process of training have a better sense of uh, what's expected of them. Uh, I think uh, the incidents of drug use are lower among those who've been through that system than haven't. So I think the hope is that uh, as uh, the level of professionalism in the police rises, drug use as a problem that will fall. I think as well, it's, it's only a small but potentially significant step, I think the sort of the internal disciplinary mechanisms within the Ministry of Interior for dealing with this issue and identifying this have improved, um, partly as, as a result of the sort of uh, the capacity building support they have received. Okay, next question, please. <coughs> Thank you. I'm Jennifer McCarthy with CAFOD, based here in London. Um, I have one very quick point um, for Moazem. I, if possible, I'd like to catch you later and um, chat about taking a slightly more critical, critical approach to the National Solidarity Program. Um, a question for Sheila around the uh, District Delivery Program and the PRTs. If um, stabilization is such a crucial link between conflict and development, I'd like um, to ask you to speak more about the role of women um, in the district delivery program and in stabilization um, more generally, particularly um, in terms of moving toward a political settlement and the role of women therein. And um, a question for General Lorimer about the uh, Afghan local police. And I wonder if you have any examples of endorsements from actors that are not uh, endorsements for the local police um, that are not power holders that could benefit from such sorry, not, structures. Uh, not, not um, sorry, endorsements for the local police uh, initiative from people who are not power holders who might benefit from such a structure. <coughs> Thanks. On the NSP, you wanted to have a word later. I'm happy to have a word later. <laughs> so the role of, um, the role of women. Um, but as you probably know, women are quite difficult to access in Afghanistan. Um, but we believe that they're critical to the future and, and critical because in many ways, if there's going to be an objection to um, highly conservative uh, rules and regulations on the ground, it's, they're going to come from women. So we have, um, both within the PRT and within the military, um, programs which are about engaging women and, and drawing them into the process and trying to get their views on how things should go forward. They have to be set up separately um, because of the, all of the constraints around public space. In addition to that, through things like the National Solidarity Program, there's a huge focus on education for girls. And Mozam gave the statistics on literacy for girls and also on things like um, maternal health and improving maternal health and, and improving women's access to health. 
So what we use is a combination of trying to reach out to women through special female engagement teams and a combination of delivery which is specifically focused on and targeted to women in the PRT or in the area in Helmand. Um, yeah, on um, the Afghan local police uh, initiative, I think what you're, I, I think what you're getting at is, is, is concern, particularly from some uh, NGOs, that all has been created is, um, it, you know, is more armed groups or sort of going back to militias. And I think that um, the point here is about the Afghan local police initiative. Is a, it's 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 driven by the locals, and not just at the uh, national level. It's the district and uh, provincial governors working very closely with the, um, the local surers for the areas and for the, the villages. It's monitored um, all the way up and down by the Ministry of Interior, but also mentored by the international community by ISAF. So there's so checks and balances in there to ensure that they actually do what they're meant to, what they're meant to do. So, and there are a number of um, locations, obviously six uh, places within Helmand, but I think total at the moment it's something like 60 plus across Afghanistan and not in, it, it just in, in one area. So um, I think that I can reassure you that it's not just a creation of more, of, of the, going back to the old mili militias and the illegally armed, armed groups. And you know, you know, the fact that General Petraeus and other, you know, people who um, have been um, you know, studying Afghanistan for some time, working with the Afghans, have signed up to it and, and are pushing it, kind of indicates it is a, is a, is a valuable tool, particularly when you, know, you need to provide that element of, of security to provide the locals the confidence that they, they need. Can I just say a word about data on um, security and access to justice and policing? Um, this is one of the things that we track very carefully at the Helmand level. Um, now, one of the critical things about data collection is that you don't just collect one set of data in one area for one year. So for about three or four years now, we've been tracking trend data. And one of the things we're very, very interested in is local confidence in the police. And what the data shows very clearly is that local confidence in the police is increasing trend-wise in each of the districts and is increasing as a sort of a picture across, across Helmand. So I think that I can't give you an example of an individual, but I think that our data on confidence in the police very clearly shows that it's improving um, from baseline and across most of the areas in Helmand where, where we're engaged. On ALP, I'll just add as well that I think um, people did go into this with their eyes open and conscious of need to learn lessons from previous approaches to sort of informal security, if you like. Um, and I think the, the amount of emphasis has gone on gone into creating the appropriate checks and balances that, that John refers to is you know, it's quite impressive, actually, because people are conscious of the need to avoid the risk of <coughs> creating um, militias associated with a particular um, centre of power or, 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 or similar situation. I think as well it's worth stressing that um, nobody's saying that these are a permanent security solution. I think one of the things people are very clear about is that you know, the Afghans, with international support, need to have a plan for reintegrating uh, those units those um, police ALP units um, at the appropriate moment back into uh, mainstream NSF or some other solution. We're very conscious of, of, of that angle as well. Okay, questions? Should we have to take two or three at a time in a black t-shirt there, please? 
um, Tom, Global Governance. Um, it's good to hear what you're doing with the ALP, but as the Trans Christian progresses, how do you stop local or provincial level power holders using the trained and armed Afghan security forces as their own private militia when the national government won't be able to pay for them? And I think there was a question somewhere right at the back there, please. Hi, my name is more for uh, the Major General. Um, my question. Uh, my name is Evelyn. I'm from Safer World. And it's just following a bit on about the, the local police uh, initiatives as well. Um, just, I was wondering if we could get a, a bit more detail. Like, I understand that they're locally owned and led, but if there's uh, conflicts between villages that might not stop them indeed being used in, in kind of local conflicts that might be outside the insurgencies. And so I was wondering if we could have a, a bit more detail about how exactly they differ from previous initiatives for like arming Lashkars or um, more militia type that have, I believe there's been several initiatives like this that have failed and I wanted to know what the difference was. I wonder <coughs> if I could <laughs> add my own little question to it. Y you mentioned it was Afghan led. Uh, and you also mentioned General David Petraeus, but isn't it partly the case that it was Petraeus's initiative to have this because of his experience in Iraq and that he then persuaded local Afghans that it would be a good idea to have these things, <coughs> these Afghan local police? Well, I, I mean, I'll, I can deal with some or all, unless, sorry, there's another question there. Well, let, let's have another. If it's, is it on the same point? Okay, please. Yeah, I also wanted, because there's recent um, research that has emerged that shows that a lot of the Afghan local police has been uh, linked to the reintegration program in places like Wardock, where wholesale um, like Taliban units have been, uh, you know, have been rebranded as Afghan local police, and uh, which has had a pretty destabilizing effect since, uh, you know, now they have uniforms and can continue to abuse the population. I just wanted to know what types of monitoring mechanisms are there and to what degree, you know, you know across the country and to what degree um, is, is the uh, Afghan local police initiative being linked more and more to the reintegration process? Okay, well, I'd like to sort of deal with a number of those and then I yeah. can throw it up and people can either spike the ball or drop it or whatever. Um, first of all, in the reintegration progress, uh, process and then link to the <coughs> Afghan National Local Police. There is potential, obviously, for reintegrees, if that's a word, to, but, it, but of course they've got to go through the reintegration process and if, they, you know, the, if the situation is right and um, you know, it's not just a default setting by any means, and there's a, quite a lot of scrutiny both by the Afghans and, and the organisations that are uh, mentoring and monitoring them. So it's not a default setting by, by any means. Um, I think to, to, to just to, to reinforce what I said is that uh, uh, in, in all these initiatives across Afghanistan, in terms of the Afghan local police, um, you know, assistance is provided by the international communities in terms of recruitment, that includes vetting, vetting and the biometric testing and making sure all of that. Um, it includes training and it includes men mentoring and, and monitoring in uh, partnership with the provincial governor and the local district governors and their NSF commanders. Key personnel being the district chief of police, 
and the Afghan national sort of Kandak commander or Tole commander who were responsible for security in that, in that area. And it's those checks and balances which I think will uh, ensure that we're not heading up in the direction that some, some of you um, have indicated. Now, in terms of sort of local conflicts, I think one of the, uh, you know, having two ALP initiatives set up close to when we end up sort of fighting, well, you know, that's up to you know, the, the, uh, the, the, the district governor and the provincial governor to ensure that that doesn't happen by making sure that the right mechanisms are in place, that they are properly monitored and they are properly mentored. Mm. I mean, and, and, it, and it requires local engagement by the local governors at district level and, most importantly, by understanding the dynamics and the interrelationships <coughs> of the local area. And, of course, the best people to provide that are... Uh, the local tribal leaders and uh, the district governors. And you get some fantastic di district governors, and I could mm. mention a few in, in, in Helmand, who have been pivotal in changing things around. Um, Hababullah Shamalani mm. in, uh, in Nadali, mm. <coughs> after Operation Mushtarak last year, when he came in, immediately launched into a series of shuras across Nadali, bringing in his Afghan National Police. Um, commander, his ANA commander, working with ISAP. And it, it's, it's a galvanizing effect if you get a really good district, mm. district governor, because mm. he understands what's going on in that area, and he can forge those critical relationships with the tribal elders and the village elders. Yeah. I mean, if I, could, if I could add on to that, I, th I think what's really important here is, is the degree of local accountability that we've seen growing up. So under Gulab Mangal, um, what has happened systematically is that um, bad or sort of ineffective and corrupt local governors have systematically been removed, not just by Mangle, but through the Shura process. And so what I think we've seen over the last four years, and, and this, is, this is Afghans taking the lead, which is really critical, is Mangle setting a tone as the provincial governor and people in the shores picking up, complaining about the local police where it's not working, and complaining about governors where they're not working. And you're starting to see very real local accountability being built up. Now, you need the international support and the technical assistance to developing the capability of the police, but none of that makes a difference without this sense of local accountability and ownership that we've seen growing up. And that is what will make the difference at the end of the day. The international support is an important element, but at the end of the day, if Afghans through the shores and through their local governance process are not taking ownership, it won't change. And that's what's really, I think, important and exciting about what we've seen is Afghans really taking control over this and really building, and the local accountability is really built up. And I think that's what's behind this improvement we've seen in confidence in the police, in that there is more local accountability, and so people are more confident that if there's a problem, they can take it somewhere. And if I could just answer the question on General Petraeus. Yeah. Um, it, it, uh, well, General Petraeus has said this is not you know, his version of Sons of Iraq, and he, he, he absolutely um, gets that. And I think the difference between this and previous initiatives, and when I was out there in 2007, there was the Arbakai initiative, which was... It, it, it was there, and then we've had community defence volunteers yeah. and community yeah. defence forces and all kinds of um, other names being put forward, but it's never been resourced, and critically, it's never had the support at local or really at national level, and, and the Afghan local police, and this, this, this initiative is properly resourced, it's mentored and monitored by uh, the international community, and it's driven 
at national or local level by the Afghans. Thank you. Lady here, please. Good evening. My name is Fatima Ayub, and I work with a global charity called the Open Society Foundations. Thank you for, for your presentations. Um, everyone on the panel uh, took some time to discuss the need for and the sort of the ultimate need for a political settlement in Afghanistan. And I think in some ways the, the conversation has, has remained quite shallow at that level because I think that we haven't actually discussed, um, e even in a superficial way, what actually drives the conflict in Afghanistan. Why is there a war in Afghanistan? And I think it's much more simplistic than there's an insurgency, we're fighting an insurgency. Sorry, it's more, much more complicated than that. Um, it's been sort of proven with very fairly detailed research that the way in which aid is delivered in Afghanistan fuels the conflict. That bad governance and corruption, as we have acknowledged, fuel the conflict. That there are legitimate poli uh, political grievances about inclusion and participation and the behavior of the state that drives the conflict, a, a lack of, a complete lack of accountability in most sectors um, for very serious human rights violations. All of these contribute to the reasons why Afghans on different sides fight. It's also true that I think that the international community can't sort of disavow responsibility for how a political settlement in Afghanistan unfolds. You cannot simultaneously, I would contend, fight a war in Afghanistan Okay, and then say that the, you know, the peace the Afghans themselves have to make. So I'd really like to hear from, from each of the speakers how they envision a real political process with a vision and a vehicle that will account for the demands and the needs and the voices of Afghans, um, how they envision that being set up and, and unfolding by 2014, because as much talk as there is about it, it doesn't actually seem to be happening. So your thoughts on that would, would really be appreciated. Okay, now is there anybody else who's got a question on those similar issues, the political settlement and sort of what is the origin of the fighting? Why are people fighting? Anybody on, on those points? Uh, my name is Najam Abbas. I'm from the East West Institute. Uh, can I request the panel to address the issue of grievances, issues of Pashtun enfranchisement, and correcting the balances in national structures, especially in military, police, and security apparatus? The second question is more particularly to Sheila Stewart. Um, when we compare the stabilization efforts with Iraq, is there a breakthrough that we can cite an ex example as a point of departure that can have a knock-off effect on other provinces. The last question is, if Hilmand is plugged as a springboard or as a corridor of instability, but given that 20% of the resources are going to one province vis-a-vis -vis 39 other provinces, is there a risk that that would uh, somehow uh, trigger instability in north or east. Thank you. Any, any other question on that particular point, these particular points? Sir. Hi, my name is Hamid Hakimi, um, working with the LSE Global Governance. Um, just a quick observation. Isn't there an attempt by the UK government here that they're trying to create a narrative of success by constantly presenting the example of 
Um, whereas I would agree with the gentleman who spoke before me um, that what about the rest of Afghanistan? How would you counter that criticism? And, and secondly, more specifically to Major General John uh, Lorimer, um, isn't the lo Afghan local police uh, a similar initiative to what happened post-Soviet withdrawal uh, with what then was called the Taslimis, the, those who would surrender to the government? And as a kid, I remember seeing them around the streets and we were terrified of them. And, and you know, um, I think that that's what kind of uh, has resonance in the, in the minds of Afghans and that's why maybe uh, they may not be uh, a long-term success with this initiative. Thank you. Okay, well, let's, would you like to start um, on the political settlement issue and so on? I'm happy to, yes. <clears throat> I'm going to take the mic. Thank you. I mean, I think in a way I, I, would, um, I would challenge the assertion that we, the international community, how you want to describe that, are the ones who should be telling the Afghans what a political settlement should look like. I mean, my sense is that would probably be counterproductive. Um, arguably, um, you know, some of the problems we face are, are the result of having dictated at one stage or another what particular aspects of a political settlement should look like. Um, I also think inevitably it's sort of thing uh, which uh, is very sensitive and it's not the sort of thing people want to be talking about in public, in detail, um, for fear of closing down one channel or, or another. I mean, I think we've seen the emergence of some, uh, some potential elements that could underpin a political settlement the High Peace Council, for example, I think was a positive, um, positive development. Um, uh, I think some of the things we're hearing from um, uh, the, the Afghan government are about the need to reach out to um, uh, those with legitimate grievances. Uh, I think the fact that President Karzai has set out, if you like, um, the framework that he would expect people to respect in terms of reconciliation. I think some of the elements are there, but I, I am not sure I would agree that we would help matters by saying specifically we want to see specific constitutional change or a particular form of government or we want to see um, a particular form of uh, um, of a devolution. Uh, my, my personal view is I just don't think that would be sensible or, or in the long run helpful. Um, I understand why you make the points you, you make but that's, that, that, that's my sense of, 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 of where we are. But as I say, I think there are some encouraging signs in terms of the emergence of some of the elements uh, some of the elements that could underpin a political settlement. I think as well, um, in terms of the role the international community can play, I think, for example, the Bonn Conference um, coming up towards the end of this year is an opportunity for the international community to provide support, public, private, practical, political, to efforts to generate momentum behind a political settlement. Um, we're going to ultimately that will depend on the political will of various uh, groupings within Afghanistan it's, itself. Um, other colleagues um, uh, may have uh, other views. Um, in terms of the other question on um, Pashtun enfranchisement or disenfranchisement, I mean, clearly it is an issue, and clearly there are people involved in the insurgency who have uh, grievances with the government, and it's potentially more because of those grievances of the government that they are part of an insurgency than any particular affiliation with the Taliban. I think you know, the insurgency is a complex structure. It's not monolithic. I think everyone would, would acknowledge that. Um, I think you know, a political settlement, if it succeeds, needs us to have elements within it that help address some of those, some of those grievances. Um, on the specific issue of underrepresentation in the NSF, I, mean, I think historically that has been a problem, that the officer class is predominantly Tajik, and, um, uh, and I know that it's an issue that NTMAs of the NATO training force are, are conscious of. I know from speaking to um, Afghan interlocutors as well, it's something they're conscious of. Um, I think, as I understand it, the problem is, is less underrepresentation of Pashtuns, more specifically underrepresentation of Pashtuns from the south. I think um, 
I think, again, this is something that NTMA are, are conscious of and, and looking to address, um, but um, John will have some, some views on that as well. well. Sheila, can you deal with the political issue, please? The breakthrough question. I mean, I would answer that very simply and say, you know, if there's a breakthrough moment in anything we've done on stabilization, it's about our understanding that local governance and accountability to people is critical and building that into the process. Yeah, I, mean, um, I have to say on the political question, I, I agree with Nick. It's not, you know, speaking as kind of government officials, it's not particularly helpful for us to speculate on the nature of a political settlement that may or may not emerge. Um, it's something that does have to be led by the Afghan government. Um, the international community does have a role. We're not without responsibility in this. You're absolutely right, Fatima. Um, but it does, I don't think it helps to, 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 for us to speculate on the nature of what that might look like. I think there's a couple of things, though, that one can say. One is that inclusivity is very important. Yeah. Uh, we know that. Uh, and that's, that's not just about bringing in those who are fighting today, but it's about maintaining uh, the coalition that has, has, has managed the country over the last 10 years. It is about maintaining the engagement of, of, of the north and the east and the other parts of the country. Secondly, that we know there's a regional dimension to this. Yeah. Uh, a, a durable peace will require um, regional support. It's kind of plain as the nose of my face. Um, and there's work to be done to try and balance the range of interests that are at play there to try and create incentives for a durable settlement. I think the third thing that I would say on this is that leaving aside quite where the horse trading goes and the nature of a deal that does or doesn't emerge in whatever kind of time frame, there are things that can be done to build institutions. Conflict occurs when people are unable to resolve their differences through peaceful means. Yeah? Um, we've talked today about uh, kind of district jurors, district governance. We can build up parliament. We can try and help women who are now by law 25% of MPs in, 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 in the national parliament exercise their voice. We can try and create institutions that can hold Afghan ministers to account. We can try and, uh, you know, so one can build up the institutions of, of, of governance and those in themselves are a very, very important check. Very important to remember in this context that under the current constitution, uh, there's a two-term limit. So Karzai's second term comes up in 2014. So there are some big institutional issues about the future of Afghanistan, not just the bald-faced horse trading that may or may not occur. Um, there was a question about um, a narrative of success. Um, that's the first time I've heard anyone talk about a narrative of success on Afghanistan, I have to tell you. Um, there are things that are going better in Helmand. Um, I have to tell you and stress to you that we are as, as officials across government, cautious about trying to put that story in the public domain. It's fragile. Things could well go wrong. This is a really important year. But all of us are absolutely certain that success in Helmand is not success for Afghanistan. Okay? If, if tomorrow Afghanistan, you know, Helmand is at peace and, and the, econ the local economy is booming, but the rest of the country is falling apart, that is not success. So, you know, much of my, my time much of John and the MOD time, MOD time and FCO time is focused on the national picture. How do we actually get a stable Afghanistan? Helmand's an important part of that, but it's not the be-all and the end-all. Oh, I'll pick up a, a, a couple of bits. On the um, eth 
ethnic representation within the armed forces. And Nick's absolutely right. Um, there are, by law, in Afghanistan, laid down percentages of, of uh, how, how many or what, what percentage of the various ethnic groups would be in the in the Afghan National Security Forces. And they are about right. The the, the, the problem is, in terms of Pashtuns, it's uh, not as enough recruited from the south. But they've now actually specifically generated recruiting teams that are going around um, and trying to recruit in the south. And I was speaking um, in the last couple of months to uh, Brigadier General Sharon Shah, who is responsible in, in command of the, uh, the Afghan National Army Brigade in Helmand, and he's got these, these, these guys that are going around specifically attempting to recruit, and that has increased, and within his brigade, the number of Afghans from the Pashtuns from the south has increased. And of course, within the local, or the Afghan National Police, there are locally recruited, so they reflect <coughs> the, um, uh, the ethnicity of the area in which they are they're, they're working. On the Taslimi and these ALP, and yeah, I've read about them, and they were clearly a, a pretty brutal force. But I think this, the mechanisms in terms of um, monitoring and mentoring, and the whole screening and vetting process, and all of that, should prevent them from coming away, as, as, you, as you described. Um, the other thing about the the, the ALP, uh, you know, it's not an enduring solution. You know, they either then transfer into the Afghan National Army or Afghan National Police, um, properly trained and all of that, or they will be wound up. But this is not a sort of long-term solution. Um, and the final thing, and I'm just interested in your sort of narrative of, well, I can't remember what you know, it was a great book's expression, narrative, narrative of success. success. Narrative of success, we're talking about, maybe you're attempted, all right, well, I'm you know, tweaking your words, spinmeister general, um, is that often when I'm talking to other groups, uh, and I say, look, you know, you all look at, as the Brits, look at Afghanistan through the prism of Helmand. And you see it through what you see on the, on the TV and on the, here or, or read in the press. You see fighting, you see um, uh, casualties, Wood and Bassett, and that's the frame of wrestling, and that's the prism through which you look at Afghanistan. What I say is, well, actually, no, you need to look at the whole of Afghanistan and see the really good things that are going on across the country. And that Afghanistan, uh, that, that, that Helmand, actually, it, in, in, in the districts in Helmand, it's the most violent place, it's the worst part. It's the rest of that, look at what's happening in the rest of Afghanistan, and occasionally I use um, you know, places up in the north or in the west as, it, as, it, as examples. Um, so, you know, there's no doubt about it, what I've been trying to do when go around to talking to um, at, at other universities or to think tanks and other places is just try and get people from looking just specifically at Helmand to raise their sights and look at more than the military, look at the whole government, whole of government effort and also raise it to the national level rather than just uh, Helmand and the, Brit, the, bit, the bit that the Brits are in, which is just two and a half out of four 101 districts in Afghanistan. Okay, okay, we're very nearly got to the end of time, so I think we'll just have to make this the last round of questions. So with the mic headphone things. Uh, get, get, wait for the microphone, please. Hi. Uh, hi, my name is Jean-Pierre. Um, just passing through, really. Um, I think my knowledge of the whole Afghan situation is a little bit disparate. Although I do look at um, the situation in Afghanistan um, with uh, 
you know, uh, respect to where, where else is happening in the world. Like I was just at a um, conference yesterday on China and um, sort of things that might be helping towards tackling corruption there regarding um, the news media and commercialization of news media there. And I was wondering, within the Shuras and, and the many districts in Afghanistan, is there any technical systems for um, the Shuras in, in terms of television? Um, and that people from different districts and different provinces can actually um, see and comment on what's happening in other provinces. So therefore, whereas one province might not want to report on its own corruption, um, other districts can perhaps report on that stuff and actually bring uh, more accountability to bear from an external perspective um, inter-provincially. Um, thank you. There's a man just in front of you. Hi, thank you. Um, my question is on humanitarian space. Um, I don't ask this just because uh, the DFIT and the MOD representatives are sitting next to each other, but um, within the context of an ever-growing number of casualties within humanitarian aid workers, when hearts and minds forms uh, a central part of military strategy, and uh, when um, across all the presentations there was a continuous spectrum between um, military action intervention and uh, purely humanitarian assistance in terms of livelihoods and welfare as assistance, um, what are your views um, in, in the ever more blurred line between humanitarian assistance and military intervention? Um, a question for anyone who would like to answer. Thank you. Thank you. Uh, lady at the back. Um, Maya Pastark here from Amnesty International. Um, how can the Afghan National Security Forces expect to perform effectively in an environment of weak and failing government institutions marred by corruption, criminality, with many of its members accused of gr gross human rights abuses and war crimes? In this context, I'd like to ask what is the UK government doing to tackle the ongoing culture of impunity, which is, an is, which is essential to achieve stability in Afghanistan. Um, the security first, justice second refrain, in my view, appears to add fuel to the insurgency and is increasing the level of mistrust between the Afghan people and the government. And my second question is in the context of political reconciliation. Um, there is also the constant refrain by the UK government and its international partners that the political settlement is an Afghan-led process. Um, I'm concerned that the rights of the Afghan people, including women's rights, will be um, sacrificed at the altar of political and military expediency. Right. Is it, were there any other questions before we ask? Sir? No, thank you very much to all of the, the panelists for your presentations. Uh, Ian Holland uh, was in Afghanistan for the past uh, six years, and uh, it was a real privilege to have served there, and uh, my admiration to you and your teams that are continuing to work there on the, on the front lines is very challenging indeed. Uh, very complex. Uh, in terms of the sort of measures for success, I wondered um, what the security 
uh, was like for the for the Afghan people if that is a, a measure that is systematically being used. Um, I know obviously uh, an international uh, working in Afghanistan uh, from 2003 to the end of 2009, it felt when we looked at the map that the, the tide was coming in and it was very difficult uh, to gain access to a number of the, uh, an increasing number of the districts. But uh, for the Afghans, I think that's what, what matters, not uh, so much for the, for the internationals. Um, and similarly, uh, measures for uh, accountability. I think uh, all of you have made mention of uh, how important it is to have transparent and accountable institutions, in particular, I think, at the local level. And uh, what measures are being used to systematically gauge the perspectives of the Afghan people. Certainly, in the Ministry of Finance in 2003 to 2005, there was a very young and dynamic cadre of Afghans who'd come back into the country uh, very gifted, very skilled, very optimistic, I think, about the future. But I, I got the sense that that was beginning to wane. And uh, so the issue of corruption there uh, is uh, very significant, I think, and probably affects people out in the provinces more than perhaps um, in, the, in the center. Uh, the second sort of question I had related to the brilliant work, no doubt, that is being done. I've seen it being done in the stabilization unit in, uh, in Helmand. But how, how does that relate, in fact, to the coherence that's been mentioned uh, also to what's happening perhaps in, in Kandahar, in Uruzgan, but indeed in the wider uh, sense across Afghanistan. As you say, you might get the pieces working correctly in Helmand, but how does that play out in the rest, rest of Afghanistan? Uh, what's, the, uh, what's the current set of play, if you like, in terms of the, uh, the best practice, what's, what's benefiting the people in Helmand? How's that benefiting people in Jalalabad, for example? And I think the final uh, question or, or line of question I, I'd have is in terms of the, the lessons learned as you sort of step back and look at this as a team, as an inter intergovernmental team, looking at Afghanistan um, from the international community. What would you have hoped or what could have been done differently perhaps as a, as a sort of big ticket item as you look at the uh, international engagement in Afghanistan, not just with the, if you like, the Western powers that are deeply engaged there, and have sustained that, the stamina of that engagement, but also the regional actors. Uh, what are the big lessons learned from, from that? Thank you again for the, for the seminar. All right, the last question, I think, from Amanda. Hi, Taylor Barm, studying social policy at the LSE. I guess uh, just sort of tying onto all these questions for the general, how hard of a deadline is 2014? Uh, if it is a harder deadline, uh, going to Mr. Malik and potentially Ms. Stewart, uh, what sort of impact do you see that having on stabilization? Uh, you mentioned progress is happening, but it's not happening as fast as would be desired, potential obstacles. If that deadline occurs, do you see uh, potential for these? How, what sort of potential do you see for future social policy programs with DFID being committed to as long as it takes to make this progress if the military is not there to ensure that sort of stability that uh, Ms. Stewart alluded is necessary to work in conjunction with one another? Okay, well, there's a very rich number of questions there, um, and I'm conscious of the time. We've, we've already overrun a bit, so I think rather than getting everybody to answer all the questions, everybody, I noticed, was taking notes diligently. Maybe, John, you could kick off, just cherry-pick two or three of the points and then leave the rest to the others. Thank you. Okay. <laughs> Particularly, yeah, I, you've got I, to do I the ran deadline. out of paper to write on. <laughs> Gosh. Um, uh, Deadlines, um, you know, 2014. Well, that's what the president of Afghanistan, you know, announced under 2014. Um, on the other hand, you know, transition conditions based on the ground. When one's got a, you know, whether they end up 
interesting to see. But we're here, and if you talk to the Afghan National Security Force commanders, which I have done quite recently, they all said that by 2014 we will be ready to assume responsibility. Um, you know, measures of effectiveness, um, you know, they're difficult to give you an idea. You, yes, you can do, you know, how many IEDs are in a certain place or that, but it's, it's, a, it's freedom of movement is a really good one, how much people can do. And I'll give you an example, Man, uh, Governor Mangle, you know, can drive to his <coughs> district capitals now, which he could never do. 2007, when I was there, you know, he couldn't drive anywhere. And neither could um, you know the, the, the provincial governor. So it's those kind of things, more sophisticated than just simple how many casualties, how many IEDs, on all of that, and linked very much to what the PRT is, is doing. Um, I'm really interested in the question. I, you could talk for hours about uh, uh, communications between. I mean, really good question. Um, of course, there's a heavy uh, reliance on traditional forms of communication, uh, particularly in Helmand, uh, you know, heavily uh, rural agricultural area. Um, but there is, in, and, and others will be able to talk about you know, growing radio, and we're using radio in the Afghan, na, uh, Afghan uh, government using, using radio, TV, word, word of mouth, though, is still one of the main ways of getting your, your message out. Interesting enough, just uh, as a bit of a sort of add-on point, um, the Taliban were um, started tweeting in English on March the 12th. Um, they put out their first tweet on Twitter uh, in English. They've been doing it for about six months beforehand in other languages, but in English, March the 12th. Um, and the sort of my opposite number in the, the Taliban, their spokesman, um, saying that we now we, we, we believe a gift from God, the internet. And yet, not so long ago, they were saying anything like that was absolute abhorrence. So that's interesting. And their Facebook site, which they used to have, has now been taken down. That's just a throwaway line in the end. Humanitarian space. Uh, I've spent many years working on humanitarian issues. Um, I do worry about humanitarian space. Um, maybe not quite so much as some in the NGO community. There are circumstances in, in, in which uh, uh, militaries have an important role to play. We've seen that in the Pakistan floods just recently where uh, the Pakistan military were the backbone of the humanitarian response. It couldn't have been done without them. Um, but in the Afghanistan context, um, we are not in the business of, of delivering humanitarian assistance either through the UK military or any other military. Um, we work hard to try and keep um, some distance between our humanitarian funding and, and, and support uh, and our ongoing development and kind of wider whole of government work. Um, and we work with ICRC, you know, UN organizations and NGOs uh, in that area. So I do worry about um, uh, humanitarian space, and we're not in the business of using humanitarian aid to win hearts and minds. Um, we're in the business of doing humanitarian aid to meet humanitarian needs, full stop. Um, on the other questions, um, God, we could be here all evening, but I know you might want to go home. Um, Account, uh, measures for success, uh, there's lots of metrics out there uh, around budget execution rates, utilization rates, um, issue, uh, people trying to track leakage from budgets and so on. So there are a set of metrics that are quality assured by some of the international organizations. Um, Afghanistan is also one of the most polled countries that I've ever come across, um, despite the insecurity. And the polling data is very useful, um, though sometimes it, it, it's also uh, 
quite provocative. So, for example, you know, we've talked at length this evening about the need to improve governance. Well, the polling data tells us that more than 70% of Afghans think their local government is doing a bloody good job. Mm -hmm. um, what that tells you is not that actually, I mean, there's a, uh, a statistic we'd never get in the UK, but what it tells you is that expectations in Afghanistan are extremely low. And so a little bit of government in Afghanistan goes a long way, um, and there are some important lessons in that. But you've got to look at some of the data, uh, quite hard to make sense of it. Um, in terms of uh, how hard is the 2014 deadline, um, you know, it, 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 it's hard in the sense of, of international agreements, the Lisbon summit where, you know, where the Afghan government made clear its request, NATO ministers endorsed it, et cetera, et cetera. Um, and the DFID planning horizon, I, and as I said, is, is, is open-ended, frankly. Um, but of course, if Afghanistan ends up in civil war and in deep insecurity, we will not be able to do the things that we hope to do. We might still continue to provide humanitarian aid as we did even through the Taliban period, but we won't be able to help build a stable and a prosperous Afghanistan. And therefore, the short time frame that we have now, the next four years, are absolutely critical in terms of laying that groundwork. And I'll, 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 I'll happily debate the big picture, lessons learned, security, and engage, you know, that kind of stuff uh, separately, perhaps. Well, Sheila, I mean, one of the questions that haven't yet been answered, the culture of impunity that yeah. the amnesty person Short asked. Straw. Tough question. Thank you very much. Um, I was hoping one of the other two would pick it up. I mean, I, I, um, I don't agree. In fact, I'm going to answer this question and, and the lessons <coughs> question that I got at the same time. I think one of the things we learnt um, is that if you do security only and security first and justice second, the outcome is not an increase in confidence of the Afghan population. But related to that, that our models of justice are not necessarily the most appropriate. And so what we've done is worked with the Afghan government to support um, local justice delivery systems right across Helmand. And I'm commenting from a, a, a Helmand perspective rather than a national perspective. And I don't have the figures to hand, but we have seen a significant increase of prosecutors and we have seen a significant increase in confidence in the rule of law system. So if I can go back to the point that I made very, very early on, um, you can't apply law and order in, in, a, in a sort of a, a security-only fashion and hope to have peace and stability. So our focus has very much been about looking at what's required to deliver rule of law and taking that back into the security piece. And that's why um, one of the things we, we are very interested in is human security and people's sense of confidence and safety. And that's been one of the strong focuses. Now, um, <coughs> we believe that's critical. I think, as Mazam says, um, you know, people are demonstrating confidence and they're that they are saying in the surveys that we do that they have confidence year on year. So it's getting better. So in other words, we're not just taking one piece of data from one year. But I think it's also true to say that progress on this is, is going to be slow. But it has been steady and it has been um, delivered at the local level and there are signs that people are increasingly confident, ordinary people are increasingly confident in the, in the justice that's being delivered. But it's not quick and it's not easy. Um, 
and I think there was an SU question, um, which was how do work, how does work relate to the coherence? Um, what, what's the national, how does this link into the national picture? And other colleagues are better qualified than I am to comment on the national picture, but all I can say is that the stabilization unit has given advice to, to other governments on how to sort of operate in, in the areas where they operate. So the, the, the British government has kind of been asked for advice on this stabilization approach by other governments. So what we've contributed to national coherence as the stabilization unit is, is lessons and the kind of lessons that I've been talking about. But I can't really comment much more than that on the national picture. Nick, you've got the last word. I think there was a question on regional actors and their role and importance and so on. Um, I think as well there's perhaps an even more difficult and sensitive question on um, uh, the sort of risks potentially as people perceive them to um, human rights in the context of, of people um, seeking to deliver a political settlement and the sorts of compromises that might involve. And what I'd say on that is um, I think President Karzai himself has set out, if you like, the red lines, you know, the government's red lines in terms of a political settlement stroke reconciliation and that includes respect for the constitution and actually the Afghan constitution is a very good constitution with, with significant protection for minorities including including women so I think you know you have an important safeguard there I think as well um, uh, the sort of the growth of Afghan civil society capacity um, is uh, an important development in that respect. I think there are, there are more people willing, able, and with the resources to speak out and, and talk about these things than was the case in the past, and that provides an important check and important balance. So I think um, you know, people are right to be concerned and to think about what the implications of these things are, but I think actually um, there are also reasons to be, to be reassured that the system um, uh, that, is, that, is, that has grown up in Afghanistan in the last five or so years actually is, is reasonably robust, and there are people and institutions um, who can make the case and point out some of the concerns that you that you flag up um, on the on the regional actors point and I think that was in the context of lessons learned wasn't it um, well perhaps the biggest lesson to learn is you know make sure the neighbors are on side um, whether we whether we can learn any lessons or articulate any lessons now about how we might have done that differently I, I think it's, it's difficult to say again rather as, as, as Muslim said you know we could spend a long time talking about that but clearly, um, you know, Afghanistan is to some extent the product of um, you know, the policies and paranoias of some of its of some of its neighbours. Um, I'm not sure there was a huge amount we could have done about that. Um, and to some extent, it's a problem that we are you know we're working with at the moment. That there is that is one of the one of the ways in which the international community can try and support Afghan efforts to deliver a political settlement by, as Mosin said, trying to ensure that the neighbours play a constructive rather than obstructive role. Well, thank you very much, and we've obviously had a very, very detailed and practical and full discussion of these complicated issues, so thank you very much all for coming, and let's give a big hand to our speaker.